We'll be in Ecclesiastes 3, if you'll turn there, and let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, that it is fruitful, that you have so much to say to us, and, and uh, thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. Thank you that your word does do a work in us that's profitable, that's edifying, that strengthens us, that uh, fixes our eyes upon you, that, that guides and governs our steps. And we pray as we draw near to you today that you would uh, minister your truth to our hearts, that we'd be able to apply it to our lives, that we'd walk in light of it and bring you honor in Jesus' name. Amen. The brain is an amazing thing. God gave us the capacity to think and to remember and for everything you can remember, there's like a lot, there's much more that you have forgotten. Uh, it's estimated that you forget 90% of the, things, the new things you learn within a week. It's like, wow, that's a lot. And the statistics say that you will forget 50% of what is said this morning within an hour. And that's probably conservative. <laughs> you, might, you may forget a lot more. You may only remember one thing or nothing from this time. But... Uh, our, our brains are designed to uh, make space and prioritize new information. So um, your brain is always working, even when you're sleeping, that you're processing new information. And we remember best when we focus our attention, when we organize the information, so that's why taking notes can be good, um, understanding it. See, we're working through some, uh, some old batteries and you probably should just throw them away. Recycle them. Live and learn. All right, so what we're saying, if we're distracted, if we're mixed up, if we don't understand, if you can't relate details to your lives, how are you going to remember? Like if, if something relatable, that's what you will, uh, yeah, that's how we remember. And, and I think about how we feel at the time. It influences how, how we remember. Like when you are really cold, you can hardly remember a time when you were too hot. And it's like, when I'm freezing, summer is my favorite time of the year. But then when winter comes, when summer comes, I'm like, when will it be winter? I am so just uncomfortable. And so how we're feeling affects how we remember. So sometimes I don't know what my favorite season is. I think autumn is my favorite though. That's established. So in this passage, in Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon, he continues to share his observations of life under the sun, that from a human standpoint, everything is meaningless. It's all vanity. And he observed how people bo were born and they died, how the sun rises and sets, how the days just day and night over and over and over continually. And our eyes are not satisfied by seeing, our ears are not tired of hearing, that the more we hear, we still want to hear more. We're hungry, and so we feed ourselves. And then, guess what? We're hungry again. And there's all these cycles in life just going again and again. And those who are known today will be forgotten tomorrow. He tried to find satisfaction and fulfillment through fun, through drinking wine, enjoying music, having many wives, building projects, acquiring gold, and he found himself empty. He's like, the more he had... The more he accomplished, the more he achieved and acquired, it was more emptiness inside. And he's like, life is not meaningful. It's futile. And it wasn't until God came into the picture that he found meaning in life, that the enjoyment of life on earth is a gift from God. He came to that conclusion. 
And in our passage today, we'll read probably the most famous part of Ecclesiastes. I would say it's as well known as Psalm 23 or John 3.16 to people who never go to church except for funerals and weddings. They've probably heard this many times. So we get to study it today. Ecclesiastes 3, starting in verse 1. It says, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Now for those, uh, are there any ex-hippies or still hippies in this room today? 1965, the birds, right? They wrote the song, Turn, 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 and it basically uses these exact words as lyrics to that song. It became an anti-war anthem popular with the hippies, but really the message is timeless. There's only one tweak where instead of saying it's a time for war, they say it's a time for peace and it's not too late. Like we need, it was so, it was just emphasizing the, that there is an opportunity for peace and, and we need to accept that rather than war. So because God is, Every, to everything, there is a season. There is a time for every purpose under heaven. And as Solomon said in chapter 1, seasons come and go in cycles. And he uses a literary device called merism. It uses contrasting words to provide opposites to show the whole thing. Like when we say God created the heavens and the earth, we know that he created much more than the heavens and the earth, but that is summing up the totality of everything that he's made in the universe, in people, in animals, everything that he's designed and created. And so here he lists 14 actions with their corresponding opposites. And we see that one impacts the other, like where there's no life, there is no death. Where there's no planting, there can't be any growth or fruitfulness. So they depend on one another. And it's good for us to realize that uh, life is full of seasons. You may enjoy one season more than another weather-wise, but you can't stop one season from ending and another one from beginning. Even when it seems that one season lasts forever and we want it to end, we can be confident that it will someday end, that it's not going to remain forever because this world and everything in it is passing away. Colonel Kilgore was right in Apocalypse Now. The shells are falling, the na napalm is dropping, and he just said, someday this war is going to end. And the war would come to an end. The Vietnam War went for like 20 years. It was a very long war. And it seemed like it would never end to the people who were suffering through it. But it did end because there's a time for peace and there is a time for war. Believers, we can be comforted through painful and difficult seasons of life that that season's going to come to an end. That season of illness, that season of, of pain, there is an end to it. And that's really encouraging because we, our hope is in the Lord not looking to our circumstances for fulfillment or satisfaction. And the most repeated word in this section, it's time, right? It's repeated over and over, time. We live in a world that seems to be governed by time. But the fact that time can be measured 
that is really good evidence of God, God's existence, who created everything, that we can know if a clock is an hour or a, a, a minute or an hour off, right? We can, we can tell. And it's like there's no way that a watch could design itself to keep time. And that's made by man. You think our solar system just happened by a stroke of luck fashioned itself to be that precise. I say, no, that's not intellectually sustainable. We're not at the mercy of time, though, even though we live in a world with time, because our time on earth is governed by God. He's the one who all of our days and all of our times and seasons are in his hand. Uh, David wrote this in Psalm 31, 12. He said, I am forgotten like a dead man, out of mind. I am like a broken vessel, for I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side while they take counsel together against me. They scheme to take away my life. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. David experienced a lot of seasons in life, a lot of difficult ones. And he acknowledged that he was going to remain on earth until the Lord saw, said it was time for him to leave. And during his time on earth, we see that he had these Changes where at one point he's broken for his sin, but then he was built up by faith in God. He mourned the death of Uzzah. Remember when he reached out and touched the ark of God and God struck him dead? Well, when the ark was finally brought into Jerusalem, it says he danced for joy. So mourning was turned to dancing. There was a time to gather stones at a brook and there was a time to sling those stones towards the champion of Gath. Right, A time to pick up stones and a time to sling stones. And we see that not the, these are not all mutually exclusive. Because at the same time, David hated lying lips, but he loved the truth of God's word. Even when he was at war with many enemies, he had peace with God. So we see both of them at the same time in his life being worked out. Now Solomon is not making a case for fatalism here that everything is predetermined and there's nothing, there's no difference that your choices make to either do good or create uh, or to avoid bad circumstances. We live a life of purpose because of God who created us. And when you think of purpose, um, that, that's intrinsic with design and plan. Anything that's created for a purpose, there was a design, there was an intent behind it. And God, it says, he created everything who's good to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose. So fatalism, it doesn't have a place for God or his grace or his plans or his purposes. God can take a bad thing like the death of his own son and turn it into an incredibly good thing through whom we can be saved and have our sins washed away. We can have new life through the gospel. It's like through the death of Jesus... Jesus was glorified and in this new body that's pointing to the bodies that we will someday be given by his grace. And we may not be able to see God's purposes or plans from start to end. We don't know what he's doing. We can't explain how he's going to use something for good. But we know that he will use all things together for good to those who love God. Purpose changes what seems predetermined to be a paradox because we, we see in brokenness for sin, 
we can be healed. There's healing that can be resulting in losing our lives for Christ's sake. We find them, right? In our weakness, we discover God's strength when we trust in him. Those who are torn apart from sin can be made whole. I like that song. We sing, you're blessed if you've been torn apart. I'm like, that's terrible, being torn apart. How can that be blessing, right? The, the humanity would look upon that and say, that doesn't make any sense. That's illogical. But we know that because God is good, he has a purpose even in those painful things he allows so that he can make us whole, so that he can make us more into his image and refine us. Hosea 6.1, it says, come and let us return to the Lord for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. So uh, Hosea sees God as responsible for causing pain, but like a surgeon who inflicts that incision with a purpose to remove the cancer, to restore the body to health in the same way, the one who afflicts you is the one who can heal you. The only one. Like our healing is only in the Lord. And so let's not run from him in times of struggle or pain. He's the one who has, he, he, in him is healing alone. And so the gospel, it shows that God's purposes and plans are so much better than ours. And of course, this list that Solomon gives is not exhaustive. It's supposed to be an overview of showing just the scope of, of seasons that we have in life. It's kind of like traditional wedding vows, right? It uses merism as well. It says to have and to hold from this day better, this day forward, sorry, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do we part. And so there's purposes both in marriage and in singleness that we can accept by faith in God from his hand and say this season, we may rejoice in the season. It may be a struggling season, but we know the season will come to an end and a new season will begin. Picking up in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 9. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Solomon wondered how labor uh, profits workers in the end. It's like he's earning money, but he's spending his money on food, right? He's spending money on things that he can't keep. He eats and guess what? He gets hungry again. The stuff that he has, it's going to get old. It's going to end up in the tip. It's going to pass along to others. He can't permanently keep them. We do see that God put Adam to work in the garden to tend and to keep it. God did not explain why. Have you ever thought about that? Like God's like, okay, Adam, here's a job for you. And this is why I'm giving you this job. He did, there's no information given about that. He just was put to work. Solomon, he was chosen to be God's anointed because God loved him, because God chose him. He didn't explain beforehand how his purposes and plan was going to work out and telling him what everything to be prepared for. You know, in the 22nd year of your reign, this is going to happen, and this is why it's going to happen. God didn't explain why things would be happening. It wasn't for Solomon to approve of. Ultimately, the wisest of all men cannot discern all of God's purposes, but... 
God, he's confident, has made everything beautiful in its time. I'm sure that you can look back upon some of the toughest seasons in your life and you can see beauty now that you could not see at the time of how God has redeemed it or how he has used it in a way. And maybe you're still in the middle of that and you're not seeing the good purposes there. But know that this scripture says God makes everything beautiful in its time. He has a purpose in it. He has a plan that he's accomplishing through it, and it's in trusting him that we find rest and comfort. Also, there's times where you thought you were living it up. You were living your best life, and you thought, you're just like, nothing gets better than this. But then looking back, having found Christ, you realize, I was so empty. I was so insecure about everything. I was so suspicious and, and greedy and envious, and there was no rest for me though I seem to be having the time of my life. Solomon recognized here that God put eternity in the hearts of mankind. You know, animals don't wonder about eternity. They don't make plans for what's going to happen uh, for their, the rest of their, um, you know, mob after they die. They're not planning like that. They don't purchase a, a grave site or write a last will and testament. They don't do anything like that. It's not even entering their minds because that's, they don't have that capacity to understand, to walk in wisdom. They don't have big picture thinking. God's not obligated to tell us anything, but he's revealed himself who has made man a living soul, that he's created us in his own image. And God's word, it provides the only intellectually satisfying explanation for the purpose of life that now is and will be, that God has a reason for things that he does. And the purpose is found in him. We don't know his work beginning to end, but he gives us enough to live by. John wrote this of those who are born again in 1 John 3, 1 and 2. He said, behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Corey Tim Boom, she says, God has no problems, only plans. And this is a woman who went through the Holocaust and was in a concentration camp and had many of her family members die. And she came to the conclusion that God doesn't have a problem. He has plans and he will bring them to pass. And she would use an object lesson that I want to share with you today. She would take a piece of embroidered work. So I have a couple of slides and she would hold it up and she'd say, like, can you tell what this is? Do you know that looks like a bit like a mess, right? I don't, I don't know what that is. Next one. So this is the underside of the embroidery. There's something that someone took a lot of effort and time to design and to masterfully put together. But guess what? You don't get to see the other side in this life. God sees the other side. He knows what he's doing. You don't know what he's doing. It may look like a mess to you. But no, he is working something beautiful. And like John says, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
So you may never know why God has allowed something. But in knowing him, we know he is good and he will make it beautiful in his time. We can be content just by looking good, right? We just want to look good. We would like things to look good. But God's interested in more than just looking good. He wants us to be fruitful. He wants us to be useful. He has plans and purposes we cannot see, and we can be content to rest in him. And so Solomon concludes, it is the gift of God to enjoy the fruit of our labor today, to rejoice, to do good in our lives. Each day is a gift and a reward from the Lord by his grace. Now, it's easy to imagine that purpose in life is defined by what we can produce or contribute. A married person might say that their purpose is to love and serve their spouse. Or a parent may think their purpose is to raise their children and to provide for them. Another, they can find purpose in their career or their net worth. And others, they could seek fulfillment in the health of their bodies or the care of the things they can do. They really rejoice in that. But really, all of those, Solomon says through this book, they are exposed as mirages. Those are not the purpose for our lives, whether you're married or have children or accomplish anything. Because death will part us from our spouses someday and from our children. Our careers will end. The money will be spent or inherited. Sickness, it keeps us from doing the things we want to do or once we're able to do. The truth is our purpose for living is found in God who created us. He's given us life and he saved us to do good works. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Ephesians 2, verse 8. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters, if you're living and breathing today in Christ, you are it's a gift by his grace and he has a purpose for you being here. You may not feel like you're fulfilling the purpose you want to fulfill, but know that it, he is going to accomplish it and he will make everything beautiful in its time. We're saved not by good works we have done, but we are saved for good works to do that he has prepared beforehand for us to do. I don't know if you guys have ever been a work, like in a working bee or something where someone has gone before and they've planned out what we're going to do. And years ago, we, we would do a working bee over at the Castle Hill Cemetery. And there'd be some people who put together some gardening tools and they're like, all right, today we're going to be clearing these beds and we're going to be weeding this out. We need to move this dirt or these rocks from here to there. And okay, so it was prepared, but there, there needed to be someone to do it. And that's what the working bee was for. And it's like God has these plans for us where he's already put everything in place, the circumstances. He's bringing us to a place of entering into that good work that he's called us to do. And it may not be some grandiose task that we aspire to, but it's entrusting him. It's rejoicing in him. It's obeying him and the simple things today that we can do. The, the Jews ask, what can we do? How can we do the works of God? Jesus said, believe on him whom he has sent. Believe on me. 
That is the good work. And everything else comes from that, through that. One good work God's made for us is to trust him and keep trusting him. So you trust him for salvation. Well, trust him for today. Believe that he will make everything beautiful in its time, that there is a time and a season and a purpose for everything under heaven, and that by his grace, he will accomplish it. Even though we're in pain, even though we have questions that cannot be answered. Continuing Ecclesiastes 3, 14. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which is has already had, that which is has already been. And what is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. God's purposes, plans, they last forever. The work, word he speaks, it is true. It will endure forever. It will never pass away. And God had told Moses in Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Now, people can ignore God's word. They can try to twist or distort God's word. They can explain it away or try to add to it or take away from it. But no one can change God's word. The thing that he said, that stands. You can ignore it. You can pretend he didn't say it. You can try to put words in his mouth. But what he has said, he has said and he will stick to it. Whatever God does shall be forever, whether it's salvation or damnation. And those he makes free, they are free to, indeed. His judgments cannot be annulled or overruled. It's like no one can escape God's judgment on a technicality because the evidence was mishandled or there was a procedural error. No, he is the just judge. He will bring everything into account. There's things that we, like there's really nothing permanent in this world. You guys have like permanent texta? Well, guess what? If you apply the correct solvent, that texta is coming off. And if that texta's cap is not on nice and tight, guess what happens? It dries out and nothing comes out of it when you try to use it. So the things that we say are permanent. A, a, anyone here still get a perm? A permanent wave. I don't think they're quite as popular as they once were. But a perm, your hair keeps growing, right? It's only good for a few months. That's it. It's permanent, but it's really not permanent. Everything that we say is permanent. Well, this whole world is passing away. Nothing is permanent here. There are seasons. There are times that God has in his own power. The only thing that's permanent is God. And he's created us to also be eternal with him. So generations rise and fall. God requires an account from every human being. It says in Romans 14, verse 10, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. So everyone will give an account to God, whether you believe God exists or not. You will be required to answer to him. The unbelievers will be judged against the perfect law of God and his standard of righteousness, which no one can measure up to. Believers will be judged by the law of liberty. 
to those who have not extended mercy, they will not receive mercy. To those who have been merciful, they will receive mercy. Those who die in their sins, they will face eternal wrath. But believers cleansed by the blood of Jesus, we will receive reward or suffer loss of reward when we are judged. So there's this, like, some people get really worked up. I remember in school, there would be people who would obsess over passing an exam. And I'm like, you could pass this exam in your sleep. You know all this material, but you want to do the very best you can because you're thinking about college. You're thinking about university. You're, you're looking beyond. You're saying, I want to have a good result. I want my life's trajectory to go in the way I want. Well, the gravity and the finality and the permanence of the judgment of God ought to grab our attention because that judgment is final. That is everything. You're, you're, Future existence depends upon your answering to God. It depends upon God, number one, through faith in him. But knowing that you need to give an account of yourself to God is a sobering thought, whether you're a believer or not, because we want to please him. We want, when our lives are unveiled before our eyes before him, that he would be pleased by his grace. And praise the Lord, he is gracious, right? He is gracious and compassionate. We can conduct our lives wisely in the fear of the Lord today with a desire to please him and to show our love for him and one another. And it's him who gives us the strength and the will to do that. Back in Ecclesiastes 3, 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every purpose and for every work. Solomon realized the justice of man is not like the justice of God. Man has a way of corrupting everything he touches. It's kind of like you buy that brand new stainless steel appliance. You pull all the plastic off and within days, maybe minutes, there are little handprints all over it. You're like, ah, okay, you gotta wash it down again and then there's a spot of rust and then a dent and then it just keeps adding up, right? <laughs> it's not long after washing those clothes. Guess what? Those clothes need to be washed again. You know, your pillow and your pillowcase. How long does that stay like um, fresh? Hmm, not that long. I don't care how, how your, your hygiene is. All the stuff that we touch, bedding, clothing, it has to be washed. It gets dirty. And Solomon, he's looking in a place of judgment. He's looking at judges. And he, guess what? He finds judges who are supposed to be upholding righteousness, there's corruption. They're receiving bribes. Then he looks at the, the priests, the priesthood. There's a place that these guys are supposed to be following God. But guess what? They're only wanting to feed themselves. There's, there's all these passages with Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. He hears they're sleeping with women in the tabernacle and he doesn't restrain them. And so he's like, I'm looking for righteousness and I'm not even finding it where it's supposed to be. And then I'm, I'm looking for justice and I'm not finding that either. We've observed problems where we least expected to find them. We discover that there's a public servant who really has only been serving themselves. Or there's a parent who's acting like a child, a spouse who's made vows before God and their spouse who has been unfaithful, a financier that we trusted has been funding their 
exorbitant lifestyle through a Ponzi scheme. And these are like, I expected you to handle my money well, and now you're, you've been spending it on, on trips, on yourself, when you were supposed to be working to make my money grow. You know, the supposed protector that turns out to be an abuser. You're looking for help, but then you're not finding help. There's actually harm. Solomon found wickedness and sin where no one expect to find it. And he's like, nothing is sacred except God. <laughs> nothing is sacred. And it's a great comfort to know that the awful things people have done and they seem to have gotten away with will not be swept under the rug. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. He sees it all. God will hold the murderers accountable for those who have gotten away with murder as well as their hatred and their envy, and their malice, and their lack of love, and their lack of faith, and no fear of God in their eyes. He will bring all that to account. Judgment is coming for us all. So Solomon says, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. There's a time there for every purpose and for every work. God's righteous uh, present and future judgment, that is a purpose of life under the sun. Where he says there's a time, there's a purpose for everything. Well, that is a purpose of life, is that God can judge. That God would judge us. And a good example is seen in the book of Jonah. God tells Jonah to cry out against Nineveh. He resists, he disobeys, but then finally he does preach against Nineveh because of their sin. And when the people heard it, they amazingly believed and they repented. They put on sackcloth from the king, even the animals and they fasted, and the king said, let's seek the Lord and repent. Let's turn from our sin, so God will save us. And this is what he said in Jonah 3, verse 9. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Ironically, God used the Ninevites who were under the judgment of God to judge Jonah and to show him his own lack of repentance, his own hatred that he needed to be chastened for and repent of. And that wasn't all. Jesus showed how the men of Nineveh actually rose against the Jews that he preached to. He says, those Ninevites are judging you. In Matthew 12, 41, Jesus said, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus, much greater than Jonah, but at the preaching of Jonah, the Ninevites turn from their sin. Jesus is preaching. The Jews are not turning from their sin. They're not repenting of their murder towards Christ. So God, he convicts of sin, of righteousness and judgment. He judges us so that we might turn from our wickedness and do what pleases God. Back in Ecclesiastes 3.18, I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them all. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. Remember, we're looking at this from a worldly viewpoint, that life under the sun, it provides opportunity for judgment, but also the opportunity for testing. God puts us to the test through the things we experience in this life. That is another purpose of life on earth. 
In light of eternity, our lives are compared to a vapor that passes away or grass that grows and then it's cut down and thrown into the oven. God created man in his own image, but he put us alongside animals rather than angels. He's like, I'm going to have men that I've made in my image dwell among animals, brute beasts without understanding. God gave us the capacity to think, to observe and understand. And if you didn't know our stubborn tendency towards pride and arrogance, one would think man would be put in his place by living among the animals. But guess what? We still feel like we're superior to them and to one another. And uh, as they were, so as, as the guys were hunting, right? They're hunting animals. They are uh, farming them for their own food. You would think that man would consider his own mortality when he's like, you know, when I go fishing, I catch a fish to eat it. And then I watch that lion lying in wait and prowling around and then striking the prey. And then they'd see that among people as well. Some happy fishermen is just sitting there and these guys are like, let's go rob that guy. And they beat him up and they take his stuff. Or on a battlefield where the bodies are just strewn around without anyone to bury them. And it's like, what's different between them and an animal that dies? What happens to me after I die? Where the animal doesn't even think that. The one who swooped on the spoil was later swooped on by others. What happens to men happens to mammals, that we all breathe the same air. The strongest warrior, the wisest uh, teacher, the fastest athlete, the most skilled servant, surgeon or musician, they all need the same air as a mouse or a rat to live. That should humble us, right? The survival of people and animals depends on resources beyond ourselves. We depend upon God for life. And I think in many cases, animals seem to have the advantage over us. I was reading about breathing and holding your breath. And that there are seals that can stay underwater for 15 to two, 15 minutes to two hours. Like that is pretty impressive. I can hold my breath maybe for a minute. If I do a minute, I've done pretty well. But one day that deepest diving elephant seal, its life is going to end. It's going to breathe its last and the same for me. All is vanity. Ecclesiastes 3.20, all go to one place, all are from the dust, and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal which goes down to the earth? So I perceive that nothing is better that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? So all people, all animals, we ultimately breathe our last, we return to the dust, and this is as God has spoken in Genesis 3.19. He said, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for dust. You are and to dust. You shall return. My grandparents live in a rural area of San Diego, and we would often make this trek along windy Wildcat Canyon Road to Ramona, where they lived. And I was really surprised one day to see a dead feral hog over by the side of the road. And that that's just something that I had never seen before. And every time, if it was day, as we drove by, I would look over and see what was left of the hog. I was interested. Um, maybe, maybe that's disgusting, but I 
hey, it was something to see along a very long drive. I would look out for the pig. And as the years progressed, the pig grew smaller and smaller until one day, finally, it was just like a, a, a spot on the ground. That was it. That was all that was left of the pig. And if you were to go there today, you would find nothing, no trace of the pig that was there. I could show you the exact spot. So the bodies of humans and animals, they returned to the dust. And Solomon makes a distinction between animals and people where he said the spirits of men, they go up to God for judgment. The spirit of animals, they go down to, in this world. It's going to pass away, right? They go to this earth. They're just gone. There's a difference that God's made between animals and people because he's made people in his own image. And someday we too will depart these bodies and this earth. And Solomon said, well, the best thing we can do in this current season is to rejoice in our works, to rejoice in what God has given us because enjoying what we can do and accomplish right now is our portion in this life. We won't have the opportunity to see what happens to the stuff we've acquired or, you know, what happens to our family or things after we pass. We don't have that opportunity. So we should enjoy doing good and working hard while we can. That's his conclusion here. And there is a sense of satisfaction in seeing a job well done. One day our race is going to come to an end. Now let's not forget, Solomon is restricting his view to life under the sun. Okay, that's a really important point of emphasis. He's not considering life in the light of Jesus Christ and the gospel. His focus on the meaningless and futility of life, it ought us to seek purpose and satisfaction that's found in God alone. He's the one who gives eternal life, right? It opens our eyes, the meaningless of this life, to our need for a savior, for comfort, and for hope. And there's something much better than just rejoicing in your own works, but rejoicing in the Lord who is working at all times, all things together for good to those who love him. So yes, rejoice in the things you can do. Rejoice in the things that you can make and contribute. However, let's rejoice in the Lord who is working, who is making everything beautiful in its time. Paul urged believers in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. We can rejoice in the Lord today and always means forever. We'll be rejoicing in him forever because he's redeemed us. He saved us. We can rejoice in all that God's done in all that he is doing and all that he will do. It says this in the prophet Isaiah in 65, 17 through 18, God said, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. Losing a fond memory or a, a treasured keepsake, that, that's going to pass away anyway. It makes us sad. But God tells us to rejoice forever in what he creates. He's like, rejoice in what I do. Rejoice in me. Rejoice in what I'm doing. And guess what? He makes us new creations in him. We can't know beginning to end what God is doing or what his purposes are in full. We know that he tests us, that he will judge us. But we can know he will make our lives beautiful in its time. I thought 
In conclusion, I would read a poem by Corey Ten Boom about life is a weaving. So life is but a weaving is what it's called. So thinking of that, we only see the underside of the tapestry. The poem goes, my life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent, and the shuttle cease to fly, will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you do have purposes in the things you allow. Thank you for the weaving that you're doing of our lives and how you weave us together as one in Jesus. Have you united us by your grace? Thank you that we can encourage and edify and strengthen one another in faith to follow you and to rejoice in you and to live lives worthy of the calling you've placed upon us. And I pray, Lord, that we would remember that you know what you're doing and you know these good purposes that you have in what we're experiencing right now in the season of life that we're in, the season, the new season that's going to begin. And thank you, Lord, that you have made everything beautiful in its time, that there is a beauty in the seasons of life and help open our eyes to see your beauty. Open our eyes to see that you are worthy to be praised and rejoiced in for all that you've done and all you've provided. I pray that your peace would rest upon us through Jesus and that we would look to you and not just um, looking to our own selves or the circumstances of life, but just knowing that you are good, knowing that you are gracious. We would rejoice in you now and always in Jesus' name. Amen.